You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. We're going to pick back up in our uh, Colossians uh, conversation to get back into the series that we have been in. And um, we spent a great deal of time unpacking the, the context of Colossians. And so we're just going to pick up really where we left off. Technically, we are in six, verse 6 and 7. Uh, But we're going to read the first uh, seven verses of Colossians chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians 2. The basic idea of this message, of this conversation, of this whole series is that Christ alone is everything. And us coming to a place in our lives where we genuinely believe that truly Christ alone is enough. And that he's more than just enough, that he really is everything. And so this idea that that Christ without anything is everything, but anything without Christ, uh, no matter what it is, Anything without Him as Lord, as God, as King, as Shepherd, as love, as leader, anything without Him is nothing. And we live in a world that pushes against this truth, and we would be foolish as people to think that we are immune to the pushback that the world gives in light of this truth. I genuinely believe we all would leave here saying yes to this statement. I would leave here saying yes to this statement, but if you look at my life, then what you will find is you will find decisions that I make at times in my life that doesn't reflect the truth of the statement. In other words, a lot of times the way I live my life and the plans that I make in my life doesn't often line up with what I believe. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit today for all of us, that he would line our actions up with our beliefs, uh, that if we do believe this, that he would convict us in such a way that we would live it as well. Colossians chapter 2, we'll pick up verse 1. Paul says this after unpacking this great, beautiful, supreme Christ. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love, so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments. For I may be absent in body, but I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the strength of your faith in Christ. (coughs) Excuse me. Look at verse 4 again. I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments. You know, it's interesting when you talk to Christians and you even think about maybe how you responded to some of the options in this world, the way people see Christianity and some of the arguments or, or maybe um, some of the arguments someone brings to you about why they're choosing to live the life that they do, or you even hear about the arguments that people may give about hot-button issues, whether it be about things like abortion or, or, or marriage, and you, and you hear these, these arguments, and it's real easy for a Christian to dismiss the, the truth that these really are persuasive arguments. I mean, Paul acknowledges that there are going to be arguments in the world that are going to be persuasive. They're going to logically at times make perfect sense. They're going to rationally work out to be true. Now, you, you, you insert faith and, and maybe the rationale changes. Maybe the logic is tweaked. But the truth of it is, I think Christians for sometimes me and the way I've been, I think I've been quite presumptuous and frankly prideful at times to think that these arguments carry no weight at all. They do carry weight. All arguments in this world carry weight. Whether right or wrong, they all carry weight. 
Hitler was a pretty persuasive man. And he did it in the name of God. And he somehow was able to convince a, 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 a people that there were another people who were animals. And then he was somehow able to think that if he could just gather the young people, remember that about Hitler? Let me gather all the children and let me indoctrinate the children with my persuasive arguments so that they'll see, so that they'll grow up to see the world the way I see the world. And so what he began to do was construct a worldview, a pair of glasses, and try to put it on these children so these children would grow up seeing a Jew as an animal. And we think how sick and how utterly ungodly. And we sometimes fail to realize that these are persuasive arguments depending on the ears hearing them. Or we watch television and we see that a happy life is only a Cadillac away. And, and we, don't, we don't realize that that is a persuasive argument, that there's something better than Jesus. Well, Fred, it's just a Cadillac. Yeah, it's just, it's just a Cadillac. And it is. It's just a car. Cadillacs aren't evil. I wouldn't mind driving a Cadillac. Just if anybody, you know, Christmas is coming. You got time now? Plan? Put back? But it's not oftentimes the material things that are evil. It's the love of the material things that become a problem. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is. That's what the Bible says. The arguments are persuasive. Paul acknowledges it. Perhaps we would do well to acknowledge it. Two, those of us who have children, we would do very well to acknowledge that the arguments in this world are persuasive. We're not going to shelter our kids from those arguments. We either have to teach them to redeem those arguments and understand the truth or not. The arguments are persuasive. In the Colossian world, the arguments were persuasive. The arguments were so persuasive that they still believed in these plurality of Greek gods, these classic gods. They still believed that the way to uh, a true salvation in spiritual life, there were some who believed that it was going to be through knowledge and that you could discover something true about this world that no one else believed. And, and though that is very close to what Christianity is, we're not saved by knowledge, the Christianity is this idea that we do see a kingdom at work, even though you do not see it, we see it through the eyes of faith. We do see the image of the invisible God in Jesus, but we do see that there is a God at work. There was this, there's this theology, this, this religion that took it to the next level and said that really until you're enlightened, you're not saved anyhow. And so you had all of these persuasive arguments, and to us, they may sound silly. How could someone believe in the God of Zeus? <laughs> well, it was a very persuasive argument in this day. The point is, is there are persuasive arguments every generation, every culture. And so Paul goes to great pains to establish Christ as supreme, to try and anchor our minds and our hearts in the reality of Jesus. And so he makes the next statement, 6 and 7, which is where we'll be. Therefore, and we, we, just, we do have to ask why, therefore, this is the turnaround statement, and you could argue that verses 6 and 7 is really the crux of all of the letter. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught and overflowing 
with thanksgiving or with thankfulness. Let me read it again. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established or strengthened in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with thanksgiving. It's interesting. What I love about Paul is he uses metaphors like crazy. And even he uses these mixed metaphors. You've got to love it. He uses them here, and he, and he does this. He uses this metaphor of, of walk in him, rooted, built, established or strengthened and overflowing. These are all not just pretty little words for Paul. These are metaphors. and We would call them metaphors. Paul is thinking and he's got in mind these metaphors and he uses these words very intentionally. Paul never chooses words and I don't believe the Holy Spirit chooses words sort of lackadaisical. He chooses it with great intent because he's trying to paint a picture for us. And he's trying to cast a big vision. See, that's the beauty of what metaphors do. Metaphors stretch our mind. When we say you're rooted in Christ, what image does that conjure in our minds? A tree. And so now our minds, if we allow ourselves, if we allow ourselves, we begin to think through a tree. We begin to think that as the wind blows or as the drought comes, what does the tree do with its roots? Digs deeper, doesn't it? Doesn't give up, doesn't pull back. It clings to life. A tree is sturdy. A tree is large. A tree lasts for a long, long time. A tree is beautiful. A tree flourishes. A tree has seasons. A tree begins to grow and bear fruit in its season. And then there are seasons where the tree does not, but it doesn't change the fact that the tree is a tree. But we could go on and on and on. And see, Paul uses these metaphors. When he uses the word built up in him, he's trying to conjure a metaphor. When you read Paul's letters, you see these metaphors. So what we're going to do is we're going to actually explore some of these words. Because I think there's power there. Now I'm going to go ahead and give you a heads up. There's nothing new here. But it's not about getting new information. It's about creating a new imagination. It's about God's word trying to broaden our way of seeing the world and broaden our way of thinking about our faith so that our faith is not only deep, but our faith is broad so that it's not just shallow and wide or narrow and wide, but that it's deep and wide. And I know some of you want to bust out in the song deep and wide right now. Yeah, see all the moms and all the children's ministry folks, deep and wide, everybody, deep, no. And so that's what, that's what we want to do is we want to try and let God broaden our mind. So here's what he says, though. Before you do that, he uses the word received. And, and he says, you have received Christ. Now, in modern vernacular, a lot of times in religious circle, we say, we say that Anne received Christ a couple of weeks ago. She's baptized into Christ. We'd say she received Christ. And, and we say that in terms of salvation. And we say someone made a decision or a profession of faith, a salvation, where they surrendered their lives to Christ. And so we say, you received Christ. And, and that isn't an altogether untrue or unbiblical way of communicating that one has been indeed saved. But, but Paul's meaning something much more than this. Let's, let's remember there's, a, there's an issue of context always in studying the Bible. Paul is a Jew, and he's a very learned Jew. He's a very, very educated Jew, and so he speaks like a Jew, even when he talks to Gentiles. He speaks like a Jew. It's who he is. 
And so he's very, very, very adept to what Jewish language would be. And not only that, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's an incredibly intelligent religious teacher. And so when you look at the word received in our English you know, translations, it just simply says receive. But when you look at the Greek, it is actually paralambano. And, it, and what it means, the word received, when he's saying you've received Christ, Jesus the Lord, he is simply saying this. The transmission of teaching about Jesus Christ as Lord has been heard, learned, believed, and accepted by you. It's real simple. He's not complicating it. All it means is that the transmission of the truth of Jesus, that has been transmitted, it's been communicated to you, and you didn't just walk away from it, you actually said, I believe it, I learned it, I understand it, I accept it. And he's saying, so if you did, then walk in him. Then just live that way. If you really believe that Jesus is the Lord, and he chooses that word very intentionally when he says Lord, he doesn't use it that much in this letter. He unpacks it a lot in this letter, but he doesn't necessarily use it this much in this letter. Paul is trying to communicate Another truth as well. We taught you, he says, about Jesus. We told you who he was and we told you who he wasn't. And you heard that and you believed that and you have learned from that. He says, so then take what you have believed. Take what you have learned. Take this truth and just begin to walk as though you believe it. Just start living as though you actually believe it. Now, that's very easy to say and very hard to do, but it's still very true. And then Paul uses the word Lord there because Paul wants him to remind him again, over and over again, I love this about Paul, his redundancy and his repetitious nature because he knows our stubbornness as human beings. He knows that all of us are going to leave this place today and with these praise songs and taking communion and hearing a, you know, a, a message from the Word from sort of a, a mediocre preacher, but we're going to have these times and then we're going to turn around and be challenged with temptation in this world and many of us are going to fall into it or we're going to choose something else or we're going to be persuaded by the Cadillac or, or by the big house or, or whatever the case may be or to keep up with the Joneses, whoever they are and, and, and we're, going to, we're going to try and direct and posture our life that way all the while sitting here right now going, Fred, I wish you'd preach about something else. And this is Paul's point. And he says, Jesus is the Lord. And you see it on billboard signs in Alabama everywhere. Jesus is Lord. And they spell it right. Yeah, that's right. I lived in Alabama, so I can do that. My wife's from Alabama. Alabama produces great women. I just want to throw that out there. But you see it everywhere. You see, you see, you even saw it in Texas. You see, these said, Jesus the Lord. Jesus is Lord. And what in the world does that mean? Now, now, remember, Paul is trying to help them understand that Jesus is different. Jesus isn't a divine hero. He's more than that. Jesus isn't just another household god of the household of the pantheon lords. He's more than that. Jesus isn't just a, a guy who lived and was born of a poor family or medium-class family who lived in Nazareth. He's more than that. Jesus is not a lesser household God. He's more than that. 
Jesus, simply put, is just plain old Lord. As a matter of fact, he would say it like this. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and the earth. The visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, all his fullness. And through this Jesus to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. When you say that Jesus is Lord, you are simply summarizing and paraphrasing Colossians 1, 15-20. Jesus is king. He's king of kings, he's lord of lords, he's Jesus He's God. And he says, you guys said you believed that. And you guys received that. You guys accepted that teaching is true. So just simply walk in him. Walk in the reality that he's Lord. When your life falls apart, remember he's Lord. When you don't know how to pay the bills, remember he's Lord. When the Cadillac tempts you, and you're driving a 97 Honda Passport that used to be white but now is a shade of brown that has four different set sizes of tires, transmission's about to fall out, and your wife is driving the nice car. <laughs> Remember Jesus is Lord, and I'm going to be just fine in that passport. Jesus is Lord. And you believed it. Live like it. Live like it. There's your practical application. And then he says, rooted. Rooted. You are rooted in him. Rooted and built up in him. This is beautiful because there's something great about this word rooted. This word rooted is it's just really, it's really simple, but yet it can be fairly complicated because the words rooted and built and established are all in the passive voice. So here's what that simply means. Kathy knows what this means better than I do. When Paul is saying it's rooted, that you're rooted in Christ, and rooted being a passive voice, he's simply saying, you didn't root yourself. God rooted you. Now, that's huge. He's saying you're rooted in Christ not because of what you have done. You're rooted in Christ simply because of what Christ has done. You're rooted in Christ based upon His work. Your hope for when the storms blow and the drought comes is that you're rooted in Christ and that it has nothing to do with you. If you receive Jesus, you're rooted in Christ. It's passive. Jesus did the work. Your salvation, your adoption as God's child, your hope, your peace, your joy, your obedience, all of this is possible merely because you're rooted in Christ and you didn't dig your own roots. He grew 
and gave you roots and placed them squarely in Christ. And that could bring so much peace. And he's simply saying, so just, just believe this and live like it's true. This could change the way you see God. God is not just a dictator. Grandpa God is looking to dangle us over the pits of hell anytime we make a bad mistake. He's the God who comes running to us after we've roamed around in the pig slop for a while, taking our inheritance ahead of time, and he sees us down the road. He runs to us, embraces us, and throws a party at the fact that we're back. We're rooted in him. Your hope for death is life because you're rooted in him. Your hope for peace in the midst of chaos is Christ because you're rooted in him. And this could change everything for us. So the question we have to ask is what needs to be uprooted in our lives? What needs to be uprooted in your life and in mine? What does the world say about you that needs to be uprooted? What if you begin to believe in these persuasive arguments that needs to be uprooted from you? That you're not successful unless you have fill in the blank? That you're not living out your full purpose unless you have fill in the blank? Or that because you've made some ridiculously sinful and terrible decisions in your past that you somehow aren't worthy of a second chance because fill in the blank? Or until your husband does this, you will not be able to be this? Fill in the blank. What is the world, what needs to be uprooted from mind in your heart so that we can understand and make our hearts available to the truth of the fact that we're rooted in Christ and that our being rooted in Christ has nothing to do really with us other than the fact that we just simply received it. See, another passive word rooted. See, here's the truth. The world and the devil himself cannot undo the work of Christ on the cross and in the resurrection. And if you're rooted in that, use your logic. Nothing can undo the cross and the resurrection. Not even the devil himself. If you believe this, receive this, trust this, cooperate with God's work in your life, simply live this way. And so he goes on and he says this. He says being built. Being built up. This is another one of those passive words. It's very countercultural to us because when we talk about building things, Rusty, right? We get our hands to work. We grab the hammer, the nails, we have people around us, we frame the house, we, we build. See, it says we're being built in the passive sense. Again, the truth is here what it was and rooted, and that is Christ, God through Christ is actually building us up. He's the one doing the work. We are progressive works in progress. We are just in process. 
See, I realize that a lot of times in life, and, and you see it in the life of new Christians, where after a little while and you start living in the world, you wonder if you've ever grown in 20 years in your faith. You wonder if you're ever any further today than what you were three weeks ago. But the beauty of this text is the fact that, look, if you've received Christ and you're walking in Him and you're living as though you trust that, then you need to trust this too. You're rooted in Christ and He's building you up. You're not the same as you were yesterday. You're not moving sideways. See, there's a very big danger about moving sideways in the Christian life. See, when you move sideways, everything's changing and your scenery's changing and so you think you're actually progressing, but you're not. You're really moving sideways. It's the great deception. You're not going anywhere. Everything around you looks different, and so the mistake is that you believe that, or I believe that, well, I'm, I'm really growing because where I am today wasn't where I was yesterday. It's because you're literally one mile to the side of where you were. And where, the reason we are is because we're not walking in Him. Because we don't trust that we're rooted in Him. But we begin to trust that we're really rooted in Him, that our salvation is secure in Him, and that peace, joy, life, and hope is found in Him. And what we find is that we begin to move forward in our faith. And as we move forward, He builds us up. Because He's the one doing the work. We're cooperating, we're responding. We're works in progress. Someone called me this week, someone in our church family. <coughs> Excuse me, hadn't been a Christian all that long. Good person. And this person's life is just chaotic. And this person's health is just, <coughs> excuse me, is just bad at times. And it's like one thing. This person you know, takes one step forward and just takes two steps back. Because health happens, or, or finance happens, or uh, you know, loved ones happen. And this person, I'm telling you, I've, I've, I've done life with this person for a while, and, 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 and this person just cannot seem, we would say this person can't catch a break. And this person called me this week excited. In the midst of all of this chaos in their life. Have nothing to be excited about. And this person said, I just had to call somebody because I am doing good. Because of this person's faith. Circumstantially, this person has a mess of a time. But this person is learning what it means to be rooted. And as this person is walking God is building this person up from the inside out, see. This person's a living testament to the reality of this verse. And so what this person has to do is to continue to walk in him. Even if things around seem to continue to fall apart, this person knows and can know that God has rooted them in Christ. And that this person is being built up. And as a result of this person being built in him, this person's faith is being strengthened or established. Established again, another one of those passive words. And it simply means that as we are strengthened in our faith, our faith strengthens us. You see, you, does that make sense? As you're strengthened in your faith by the Holy Spirit of God who lives in you, and you begin to walk in that strength, then your faith ends up strengthening you. 
And so it works hand in hand. You can't divorce the two or separate the two. It's the way God made us. It's not a linear lifestyle. It's, it's this way. It goes this way. It's this idea that, that God is strengthening me. I'm trusting His strength. I'm living. My faith is being confirmed because I'm continuing to trust. And it's like my faith is strengthening me as God is strengthening my faith. And it's just going on and on and on and on. Why? Because that is what I was taught. And he says, just as you were taught. Because that is the truth of the cross. We're rooted, we're built, and we're strengthened. When a plant is planted, it has a very healthy seed. The seed is firm and strong. As the plant grows in its infancy, that plant is made vulnerable to all the conditions of the weather. But when that plant grows to become big and strong, that plant can endure the weather. And that plant can bear the fruit that that plant was created to bear. Now, in its infancy, the gardener needs to realize that some great care may need to be given to this fragile little plant, especially in the infancy stages. But as this plant does grow and develop, the gardener still realizes that this plant needs to be taken care of, but the gardener can step back with a little peace in their heart and know that the plant is strong. Because the roots are deep. See, God is our great gardener. And he knows how to guard in our hearts. The question for me and you is, will we trust his hands? Will we trust his hands as he prunes us, which can be at times painful? Will we trust his hands as he maybe even uproots us to move us over into a better place in the garden? Will we trust His hands? See, God is a great and beautiful gardener. And that's all Paul wants us to understand. And see, when we begin to understand that, something happens inside of our lives. We begin to have this great sense of gratitude. This great sense of thankfulness. The word overflowing here is the only word here that is not passive. This is an active word. And what that simply means is that for me and you, in a way, this is on us. See, we can choose whether or not we live a life of thankfulness. The truth of it is, if we really do trust and believe that we have received Christ, and we really do trust and believe that He is rooting and building us up despite our life, we then can choose to make a phone call and call somebody and say, I've just got to tell you, I'm doing really well considering the circumstance. And I just wanted to call somebody. See, that's thankfulness. And Paul is saying, this is what happens. An overflowing of gratitude comes out of the lives of those who understand what has been given to them in Jesus Christ. Perhaps a reason why you and I aren't as thankful as we are is because we do not believe as deeply as we should that we have been rooted in Christ. Maybe that we are not thankful as we are because we have not really sat down and remembered and realized and embraced and accepted the truth of what's been given to you in Jesus. The hard truth of the gospel is that without Jesus we are all hopeless that we are all going to spend this life and forever away from the one who made us. 
And yet he looks at us in pity and mercy and love and grace and does for us what we could never do for ourselves. He comes and he overcomes our sin for us and takes it upon himself. He lives a life we could never live and he does it for our sake. There is no other religion or argument in the world that is more persuasive and better than that. There isn't. If you find it, then I want to be that guy then. I want that religion if there's something better than Jesus, but I know that I know that I know, and I don't know a lot, but I know that I know there's nothing better than him. And the sad reality is some of us fail to believe this, especially those of us who were raised in the church. I've got to confess, sometimes I envy you guys who weren't raised in the church. But I know too much for my own good. The truth of being thankful for what God has done is not, is not land in the realm of material blessings because material blessings come and go. The truth of it is when I'm thankful for what God has done in Christ and I realize that the God of heaven and earth lives inside of me because of what Christ has done, that I'm rooted in him, I'm secure in him. That nothing can undo the work of the cross and the resurrection. Nothing in my life can undo what Jesus has done. It's a time in history that has changed my future. Nothing can undo that past. And, and I believe this, I will find that I have more security. I'll become less prone to doubt and less prone to anxiety. And if there's anything I struggle with in my life, it's anxiety. But I believe with all my heart that the only reason I'm not an absolute and utter chaotic mess, Allison may disagree, is that I'm just walking in him. I'm just holding on to him. And we'll find that if we believe this, we'll stop searching for something better than him. We'll stop searching for, for money as if it's better than him or our, our hobby or another person as if it's better for him. And here's the utter truth of it all. We'll be less prone to believe the gospel lies, the false gospels, which is Paul's point. I'm telling you guys this. Look at verse 4. I'm telling you guys this so that you will not be overtaken by persuasive arguments. Because you'll realize no matter how persuasive those arguments are, they fail, fail to live up to the argument God made for the world in Christ. And see, here's the truth, church. As you and I grow in this and learn to rest in the care and the provision of the beautiful gardener called God, then what will happen is we'll become a community of gardeners and builders ourselves. Because we'll be living in thankfulness. We'll learn how to care for the tender plants, the tender hearts that God sends our way. And we can care for them because God is caring for them. I'm so thankful that God's sovereignty is bigger than my stupidity because in my mistakes, he still gardens perfectly even though I may fail to garden well. But I can take peace that I am called to garden the hearts of my wife and my son to garden the hearts of those I love, to garden the hearts of the relationships he's placed in my life, to be a disciple maker. Because that's where this all lands, is we have a beautiful gardener and builder in Christ who's called us to be gardeners and builders in the church. And we're not going to read the text because of time, but when you read Colossians 4, 7 through 17, you get a list of all the gardeners and builders in the church. Paul goes through this litany of people, Aristarchus, Epaphras, Tychicus, all of these people that God gave the church to garden and build, to be disciple makers. 
The only way that we can is if we believe what we have received and live as though we have. And so we had our retreat last weekend. And we did take a look at, prayerfully, as we are called to do, of what God is doing and has been doing in the life of this church and this body. And God has been doing great things. There are stories after stories. It would be easy to look and see, well, there hadn't been a lot of new programs. Well, that's been intentional. The world will not change through programs. It will change through changed people who live differently every day as everyday people in everyday places and in everyday ways. And so we've heard stories about a family who got convicted over a handful of families in our church who had come on hard times. And so this family cleaned out their freezer and gave all the food to the people in need. See, stories like that. And I I, I could go on. Those are beautiful stories that you don't put in a pamphlet. We don't make a sign of that. Hey, come to this church because we got people who do this. Hopefully when people look at Jesus, that's supposed to be who we are as we're walking in him. But we did ask for your hopes. We did want to know what your hopes and dreams were for the church. So here, uh, here's what happened in the caucus. Literally 51% of you who responded with a hope for the church, a singular hope, ultimately gave a two-pronged response in your care cards. You said... My hope is that we grow deeper in our faith and love for God or something like that and love for one another. So we looked at all the care cards and we split them. 51% of you said this was your greatest hope for the church. Now in that would flow like more people getting involved in the life of the church so that this can happen and all that's true and we had that message. And and so a lot of that is springing from this, but but ultimately this is where it lands. And then the 49%, 49% of you said another two-pronged response, that you hope we grow in mission. Now nobody really worded it that way, that's my wording, but what you said was that we evangelize more and we serve people more so that we grow in gospel proclamation with our lips and gospel demonstration with our lives. And I thought, that's the heart of the church. That's what God wants to do in our lives, is he wants to create a people who kind of see life, and I'm going to completely create a false dichotomy and and oversimplify this, who see the church as 50-50 in the sense of that we gather together to love God and love one another, but not to the exclusion of loving our neighbor. That church isn't about us, it just involves us, and it's about the lost. That God has a mission, and then he has a church for his mission, not the other way around. And that's what this is. But here was something very interesting is out of that 49%, literally half, and I counted this more times than I can remember really, literally half of you specified the desire to serve the poor and the homeless. That God is doing something inside of this church that is seeing a broken world and wants to do something about it. So then here's my question. Can we get to work? Can we do something about it? And that ultimately is what the shepherds and the staff met about. And so here's something that we did last year that you need to know if you're part of this body. And this year we're going to try and do even better. As we tend God's garden, 
the church uh, last year at the last year's retreat. We looked at the church and said there were seven areas. And we did, we did introduce this to you guys last year. I don't know if you remember or not. You might have been asleep. But we, we did introduce that in a message. Um, and we, we narrowed the church down into seven key areas. This idea of spiritual formation, which is simply what God is doing to form us spiritually. Support of self-explanatory. Uh, community life. Um, meaning that what is God doing to bring life to this community of believers? Us. This is the love one another sort of idea. And then this idea of local and global mission, this prayer and cares where you get the concerts, prayers, congregational visiting, you know, things like that. Dave really oversees that. Life connections groups, that's our small groups. Children and youth, and then financial stewardship. Real quick about financial stewardship, this is, more, this is far beyond just budget issues. That's why we said financial stewardship. It was the idea of how can we, intending God's garden here, create lives who understand what it means to be good stewards of their money in general. So we don't go out and buy the Cadillacs and can't help the poor. Really. Not just one with a Cadillac. Drive a Cadillac. I'm not saying that. And so the shepherds took a look at this. And, and, and last year they fell in place. Because John has a real passion for spiritual formation, worship. He leads worship. So it just made sense that as an elder he oversee this area of the church. And so when he prays and he thinks and he looks at us... That's what he's thinking. That's what he's praying. See, what this becomes is an eldering model, a shepherding model. And then you've got Fred and Jerry, which is kind of a funny Fred and Jerry, Ben and Jerry. Fred and Jerry thing. Jerry's one of our deacons, and he's going to work with me to really sort of oversee and tend the garden of community life, where we ask, okay, what are we doing as a church of being together? Whether it be like a Trent Monk concert or fellowship meals. What are we doing to foster a sense of community within one another? And then Dave Osborne, he oversees mission, local and global. And so his prayer concern is, God, how are we changing lives as everyday people in everyday places in the city and in the world? And then Dave, of course, overseeing prayer and care, Dave Faith. Danny overseeing Life Connections groups. And you see the list there. Garrett and Clifton serving together to say, okay, how can we grow children and youth to become people who are joining God's pursuit of restoring lives at a young age? And then you see financial stewardship with Ray. What this is, and I'm not going to go into great detail today, but I want to introduce this to you. Our shepherds are shepherding with some intentionality here. Right, just meeting in a room and, and deciding what needs to be done administratively and, and saying yes to things and no to things. The shepherds are looking and, and are saying, okay, how can we tend God's garden in a more intentional way? So that when we look back at the church, we're growing in our faith. Not just activity, but actually spiritually. And there'll be more on this in the next couple of weeks. I want to close with a story. Brian and Penny Smith met Kathy and her husband, George, uh, 2009 when they moved into their neighborhood. Uh, Kathy and George and the two kids were quiet people and very rarely even said hello. At times they would have a casual hello, but that was about the extent of these two neighbors' relationship. Kathy was a stay-at-home mom, staying home, taking care of her son George and Diana. Consequently, she would be in and out all day long. And so when Brian and Penny would go outside to play with Reed and Brianna, rarely would they see him. But if they did see Kathy out with the kids, a lot of times Kathy would just quietly go back in the house and not really say a word. Just a very quiet family. George and Alana, they would just go back in the house and not really say a word. Kathy's husband, George, was a painter, seemed to be a successful painter, had a beautiful van out in the front yard advertising his painting business. But he, too, was a very quiet man, never really spoke. 
Several months after Brian and Penny moved in, they noticed that George was no longer driving the truck to work. He was just sitting in the driveway day after day after day. Brian later found out that George was sick and wasn't able to work anymore. He was fighting a battle with cancer. One night late, Brian and Penny were awakened by the sound of sirens and lights. George lost his battle to cancer. Kathy was left with her two young children. Several weeks after the funeral, Brian was playing outside with Reed, and Kathy was outside, and something strange happened this day. And as he waved hello, she didn't run inside. She came to the adjoining fence. And for the first time, they had a conversation. And it was a conversation of pleasantries about the weather, about kids, about school. But before Brian knew it, she was pouring her heart out about her husband's battle with cancer and the pain she felt of the loss. Brian is a good man. He didn't know what to say, so he didn't say anything. He just listened. And then she started talking about all the practical hurts. The grass doesn't get cut as much as it used to at all. The house just goes around and falls apart. George isn't around to fix the home. He's not around to cut the yard. He's not around. He's gone. And if you know Brian Smith, Brian Smith carries a man card that uh, far outweighs my own. Brian can fix about anything and do about anything. And Brian knew that there was something he could do for this neighbor. He could cut the grass. Brian noticed the grass had not been cut, so he got to work. And then Brian later on got to know her just a little bit more and wanted her to understand that he could help her if she needed some help. So one day as Brian is cutting the yard, he sees little George and Ayana staring at this garden that they had in their home, in their, in their backyard. And this garden was unkempt. It was just untended. It was overgrown with weeds. The railings of the garden had rotted. They were very quiet, didn't really say much. Matter of fact, since their father's death, these two kids rarely even came outside anymore. But as they stand there looking at the overgrown garden, Brian overheard George ask his mother if they could replant the garden like Dad used to. Kathy didn't really have a response. Matter of fact, Brian said the look on her face was indescribable. Later that week in our Life Connections group, we were getting together and talking about what mission we could do together. And Brian mentioned this garden. And we thought, you know, that's the right thing to do. So Brian went to Kathy and asked if we could restore her garden. And she agreed. And we had the privilege and the joy of restoring her garden. And it was great. The Thursday night that we met, we got together and we began to till it, to rebuild it. And then we took a Saturday and we began to rework it. And next thing we know, George and Liana, the two right there, these kids that never uttered a word, rarely played outside, came outside and started planting with us and then began watering it. And I wished, I wished you could have seen the joy in their life. I wished you could have seen the joy in their eyes. There they are, too. Our kids got to work. Messing up the cucumbers. 
And I remember sitting with George, the little boy, and I asked him, I said, look at the garden. I said, what was the garden like before? And he said it was dead. I said, do you know what God can do? He can take overgrown, painful and broken things and create something new inside of that, just like he did your garden. And that's been our prayer. See, the truth is, that's what God wants to do in our lives. And when God does that in our lives, he wants us to be a part of doing that in the lives of others. (laughs) 